Huh? All right, let's do it again. Do it louder this time. All right, so on Tuesday nights, we've been looking at the series for the last, good grief, what, five, six months? Something like that. It's been a long time. I think since COVID started is when we really kicked into this, starting with the heart and looking at your growth from salvation to discipleship to listening when the teacher's talking to me to understand what's going on. Um, and Stephen has that nice big graphic, um, you know, talking about everything originates in the heart. And then from the heart is where the growth happens. And then from that growth, obviously, Satan's not happy. And then we started looking at potential pitfalls. Um, so the last three that we've looked at were personal sin. We got into that. That can be kind of a hard one to deal with because um, the hardest part with personal sin is admitting to yourself that you do have a personal sin problem and then dealing with it. Bringing other people in, accountability partners, looking up verses that have to do with your sin and hitting that sin head on. Um, relationships with others, um, looked at friendships, uh, dating, all kinds of different things. Relationships can be huge, huge pitfalls. And they tie in a little bit to what we're going to look in tonight, look at tonight. And then uh, just different ruts and plateaus in your walk with Jesus Christ and how to be on fire, how to f- kick up that excitement a little bit um, in your walk and the difference between being lukewarm, Laodicean Christian, or a usable hot or cold, you know, uh, Christian. And he talked about, you know, the difference between some people. I like lukewarm water, so I was kind of a bad example, but, you know, like hot chocolate, like it hot, you know, like lukewarm hot. Well, I wouldn't call it chocolate, hot chocolate, lukewarm chocolate. You know, there's a purpose or coffee. All right. And then like a glass of milk. Nobody likes warm milk, like cold milk. And the picture of, you know, God wants you to be usable. He wants you to be on fire, whichever way he made you. Um, So ruts and plateaus, they can definitely creep in and make your walk. They can bring you to a point to where you don't even feel saved. Your walk can be so stagnant. Your, your, Spirit, your uh, zealousness for God can be so pushed down that you don't even feel like you have the Spirit of God living inside of you sometimes. And that's right where Satan wants you. Because then you're not out doing the work for Jesus Christ. You're too busy worrying about yourself and your own eternal security and you're driving yourself mad. And don't raise your hand, but how many of you guys have been there before? How many of you guys have been in that position where you've been in such a deep rut, such a deep plateau that you're like, how can I even be saved? I've absolutely been there. It's a tough spot to be. It'll drive you mad. And people, especially the Catholic Church, will argue and say, well, if you commit suicide, you know, there's, you cannot get into heaven. I'll tell you right now, that's how a Christian will commit suicide. You'll get to a point of such a deep plateau, a deep depression, that you're, you literally go mad and you lose your mind. And the only escape from that is seemingly to to end your own life. But I'm telling you, ruts and plateaus in your Christian walk can be huge. And then what we're going to look at tonight is life transitions. And life transitions can come in many different fashions. We're going to look at some main ones and some biblical examples down below, um, make it a little bit personal, um, but then also practical. All right, so by way of introduction, um, if you guys could turn to Job 41. Job 41. So by way of introduction, Satan will use any and every opportunity possible in an attempt to bring sorrow to an individual's life. Once you guys get there, can I have a reader for verse 22? Alana, let's let everybody get there. First off, who can tell me what Job 41 is about? Come on, have confidence, don't ask. Leviathan. Leviathan. And the Leviathan is who? 
Satan. One of the most one of the best pictures of Satan in the Bible, and there's no wonder why it's one of the most attacked scriptures in the Bible. Oh, it's just some whale. Oh, it's just some whirlpool. No, it's a description of Satan. Very clear characteristic description of who Satan is and what his goal is and and why he is really not one to be reckoned with by us. But then look at verse 22. It really reveals his heart. Sorrow is turned into joy before him. So every all the sorrow you go through, whenever you're in a position that your heart just feels broken. How many of you guys in here have had a broken heart? Just sick. Sick at your core. A play, like a time in your life. You guys all have times in your life you're like, man, I, I never want to go back there. That moment, Satan was exceeding glad. It, that moment has turned to joy before him. That's what makes him excited. That's what wakes him up in the morning is our sorrow. Our sorrow is turned to joy before Satan. And then few, but back on your study sheet, few situations present a more vulnerable occasion for this than life transitions. Life transitions can be distracting, draining, confusing, emotional, serious, exciting, etc. They can have all these different characteristics. And Satan will use these times in your life to get you so focused on yourself and the circumstance that you take your eyes off of Jesus. We're not going to turn there, but Matthew 14, it talks about Peter walking on the water. What was the, the key with Peter? When he was walking on the water and he's looking at Jesus, he's, he's walking, walk, walking on water. I mean, that's incredible. But then what happens to Peter? He starts to what? Sink. Why does he start to sink? He takes his eyes off of who? Jesus. And what does he look around at? It says he sees the tempest. He sees the waves starting to come up and he gets scared. He takes his eyes off of the mission and he starts looking around at the circumstances. He gets distracted and he starts to stink, starts to sink. In Hebrews 12, 12, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, our mark. How many of you guys in here run long distance? It's a dumb sport. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but when you run, when you run long distance, what's one thing they tell you to do if you're running? If you're going to try and run in a straight line, keep your head up and you find something way out there. You run towards a mark. What happens if you try and run at something directly in front of you? You ever tried to mow and look down at the line while you do it? What happens when you look back? You're like, holy cow, I suck at this. You need to look straight. It's the same thing in life. If you keep trying to look at every little step that you're taking, you look at every circumstance that you're in in the middle of, and you take your eyes off of the mission that's set before you, you're going to have a mess. You're not going to get where you're supposed to get going. It's the same thing spiritually. When you're in the middle of a transition, it is critical to let the Lord direct your steps rather than letting your heart devise your ways. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 16. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Proverbs 16. Can I have a reader for verse 9? Jake. So a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. So obviously a complete contrast there. And I wrote out the word devise so we can understand what that really means. 
So the definition to invent, to contrive, to form in the mind, and then your blanks are going to be by new combinations of ideas, new applications of principles, or new arrangement of parts to consider, to contrive, to lay a plan, to form a scheme. So in other words, when you devise, you're creating something new. You're trying to make your own way to get through something. You're trying to make your own way to get somewhere else. You're trying to control your own situation rather than letting the Lord direct your paths. I think of an illustration. So you have, let's say, mountaintop here's position one. Whatever. And then you got... Man, I wish I had a red hair. It's red. I was going to draw Sam. <laughs> and you got oh, position one. Position two. All right, so you're trying. So here's where you're at in life right now, okay? And then there's a transition. So whatever it is, call it whatever's on your sheet. You have school, you have marriage, you have birth. You have something that goes on in your life that's a huge transition. So you're getting from this point in your life to the other. So you got to what? Cross the bridge. You have this transition, this moment in time that takes you to somewhere else in your life. That, that If that moment hadn't happened, you wouldn't be here. Okay? If I didn't get married, I wouldn't be a husband. I wouldn't be in this married position in my life if I didn't have a wife. So that marriage had to take place. It's like anything in life, any transition in life. But what we tend to do is we start to go through this transition and God's bringing us through it because it's not just like an instant in time and all right, you're there, I'm in the position, it's working out. It's a process. When you start going through that transition, if you were going over this bridge, what would you have a tendency to do? Look down. Start freaking out. Start trying to find your own way to make it safe. Maybe, maybe there's some wood and you're like, well, I just need to bring some wood just to make it safer. I need to build my my own safeguards. I need to make sure that I make it to the other side. You start worrying about everything through this transition rather than just letting God be God. You start looking around at every, you start looking around at all your circumstances, everything else going on around you rather than just seeing God's getting me here. God's going to get you there one way or another, but we spend so much time worrying about all the details of this transition when God's like, I got you. I'm directing your steps. You could do this with your eyes closed if you trusted in me and it wouldn't matter. Peter walked on water. We don't trust God with our day-to-day. -day. We trust God with our eternity. But we won't trust him sometimes with some simple transitions. And I'm guilty of that as well. It can be so hard in the moment not to focus on the details that you're going through, the trials, because you feel like that's the only thing going on right now. And we lose sight of where God is trying to get us. And sometimes there's clouds or there's fog, so we can't exactly see where he's trying to get us. But the Bible is true. Don't devise your own way. Trust God who's going to direct your steps to get you to that point, even when it's not clear. And that's exactly what a life transition is. So don't reinvent the wheel that God has already given us in his book. Don't try and come up with something new. Don't try and devise your own plan to get where God wants you to go. Trust the book. Trust what God says in his book. And you see how it's really, it's all a matter of the heart. Any transition you go into, your approach, the circumstances, details are the same, or are different, not the same. But your approach, the concept is the same. Are you letting God be God in those situations? Any transition, we're going to look at some of those. 
So some life transitions. So biblical truths, examples, and personal examples are really what we're going to look at below. So the first one, and I noticed as I did this, I'm like, it's kind of out of order. You know, birth and then marriage. You know, having kids, then getting married. We're going to flip-flop that in our minds, but it's on your sheet as birth, then marriage. You should be married before you have Okay, never mind. That's supposed to be funny. I did that on accident. But anyways, birth. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18. So it's going to be a little unique at how we look at this tonight, but it's just kind of how God connected things in my mind um, as I was going through these. So some transitions are more difficult than others. And I think they're more difficult because the stakes are that much higher. Think about how high the stakes are when you bring a kid into this world. I mean, you can ask Megan. Was it a flippant thing when you just brought, brought your son into this world? Like, oh, it's like, I already have a couple of them. This will be fine. This is easy. No, that's a big, big deal. And it's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to Jesus. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 2. It says, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child... In my name receiveth me. You think Jesus loves kids? Yeah, look at the consequence for not viewing kids the same way that he does. Verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, these kids, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. See, Jesus values kids. He knows how precious they are. They're precious in his sight. You guys know that song? Jesus loves the little children of the world. Does something, something, something. We're precious in his sight. I don't know. But, yeah, I'm not, I don't sing. But children, they're very precious in his sight. Think about it. Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, came down, and he's, I, I just picture him standing there with children. And it's like they're just, like, soaking up every word because they're so innocent. They're so moldable. Satan, he's after kids. And we're going to look at some verses that talk about that. We're not going to go to chapter 19. Uh, verse 14, but it says, suffer little children. Don't be bothered by little children. Give them your time. And Jesus even says, let them come unto me. He loves children. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 6. I want you guys to think, what's the first recorded command in the Bible given to man? Be fruitful and multiply. I.e., go have kids. Kids are very important to God. Think about it. He sent Adam and Eve onto this world to create a, a race of people that he could have a relationship with. How else are we going to increase that race? How else are we going to in- increase that species? By, sucks. <laughs> by reproducing. By having kids. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Dude, we are not. I swear we're all mishearing things. But I would expect that from you. But kids are extremely valuable to God. I mean, think about the first recorded command given to man was go have kids, go have babies. We read right over that, but they're very important to God. They, have, they play a huge part in his plan. Look at Proverbs, Proverbs 6, verse 26. Now, we know the context of this. It's talking about the strange woman, the adulterous woman. But I want you to look at a key word, and then we're going to connect it with 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, for by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. 
And I understand the context. It's talking about, you know, a man going after a strange woman. But the tactics of the enemy, look at that keyword, hunt. That's how the enemy attacks us. He hunts for us. Anybody know 1 Peter 5, 8 by heart? Be sober. Because the, av- because the devil, your adversary. All right, let's go to 1 Peter 5.8. <laughs> that was a good try. I appreciate you trying. We'll make fun of you too bad. At least you tried. Everybody's laughing, Sam, but at least you opened your mouth. Embarrassed yourself, but at least you tried. But the enemy, he hunts for that precious life. 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. You want to know why when you have a kid, that transition is one of the hardest transitions ever in life? It's because those kids are so valuable to Jesus Christ, and Satan knows that, and he's going to do everything in his power to step in and interrupt God's plan for that child's life. God takes kids, he takes children very, very seriously and loves them dearly. He calls them out more specifically as almost a a unique love for them that's not spoken in the same context as it is for adults. Understand when when transitions seem harder or not, a lot of times they're harder because the stakes are that much greater. Some of the hardest transitions we've ever had in marriage were after we had Emma and then after we had Matthew. And I know Brandy can attest to that. Those are hard times. Weird things, you know, people always say, you know, when you're being attacked by your flesh, that's obvious. The temptation, something comes up and you're like, shut up flesh. You know, when the world's oppressing you, that's obvious. You can see the world pressing down on you. You can feel the persecution out at school or out in public. You can feel all that. But sometimes it's hard to understand when it's Satan. And I remember real good advice I got from someone. They're like, you know, when it's Satan, when it's just very weird, it's very confusing And I'm telling you, each time we had a kid, it was very weird. There was a weird attack on our household. It was almost like Satan. You know, think about when Jesus was born. Herod was sending people all over trying to have all these babies killed. It's almost like Satan sending all his minions when a baby's born, trying to get a hold of that baby. If he can get that baby at a young enough age, the chances of them coming to know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, goes down tremendously. It's like all those rebel terrorist group over in Africa. and they, they brainwash these kids at such a young age. And it's even happening in America today with all this garbage that we're being taught. And it's starting at such a young age. But those transitions, when you have a kid, they're so difficult because the stakes are so high. Satan is doing everything he can to make sure that transition falls, falls apart so that you can't be successful. Because what's waiting on the other side in position two after you have a kid is a kid that has a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Next one. Marriage. So marriage, I would even tie that with just relationships. But marriage as a whole has its own. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3. Marriage is a big transition. I remember when we first got married... Right before we first, like the second time was easy, but the first time, I only got married once. She's back there. But when we got married right before that, I got some advice from a couple, and I won't share it just because it's 
private information. But he's like, yeah, man, when we got to the hotel, my wife just started bawling. Like, this is, why did we do this? Why am I married? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, holy crap, if that ever happened to me. But you know what? He shared that with me, and we leave the wedding venue. We go to the bank to start depositing, you know, all this cash that you got for the wedding. And I'm putting it in the bank, and I turn over, and there's Brandy bawling. I'm like, oh, good night. (laughs) I'm like, good grief. But it's just, I mean, you probably couldn't even really explain. It was just a rush of emotions. It's a huge transition. It's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, she was bawling. (laughs) But marriage, marriage is a big, big transition. Think about it. I mean, Brandy's name changed. Her whole identity changed. And it's a big deal because of the picture that it represents, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ. But Genesis 3, 6, look at how these transitions, look at how they can be affected. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And understand, I mean, we know the Bible and how everything was built, but if she wasn't married, the verse would stop there, wouldn't it? There'd be no one there that she's sharing her life with. But it continues. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. You see, when you get married, or even, I'll just break it down a little bit. When you're in a relationship, and Satan attacks you, Satan disrupts that transition that you're in. He's not just taking one person out. A lot of times he's taking two. Think about it with dating. What's, What's the big thing you guys struggle with in dating in high school? All right, I'll say it. Fornication. A little touchy. Think about it. When you're sinning like that together in a dating relationship, all kidding aside, you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting each other. Satan is able to take two people out with one act. It's a pretty efficient way to do that. But that's why those transitions, there's specific things that he'll, he'll spend extra time on in those transitions. Dating, marriage is one of them. You know, Matthew 1, we're not going to turn there, 18 through 25, is the story about Mary and Joseph and their transition into marriage. And this is where when you're on the bridge, this is a good example. Adam and Eve was obviously a bad example. Mary and Joseph was a good example. Think about it. If somebody came to you and said, husbands, and said, hey, just want to let you know your wife's pregnant. And you know that you're not married to her, therefore you guys haven't had the ability, boomed. You haven't had the ability to have a kid. So what would your first thought be? I'll kill him. him. I'm going to kill the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You'd be pretty fired up, wouldn't you? I mean, that'd be your flesh. How did Joseph respond? He cared about Mary. He kept his head on straight. He didn't look around at the circumstances. He wasn't looking at himself in that transition of marriage. He was like, all right, God, I want to do what's right. I care about her. I want to put her away privately so that nobody's going to think she's an adulterer because if they found that out, they'd kill her. And you know what God did? He honored that. and He came by an angel to Joseph at night and explained to him what was going on and said, look, that baby's no ordinary baby. She was faithful to you. Don't, don't put her away. You're going to have that baby. You're going to raise him up. You're going to name him Jesus. You see, when we take our eyes off of ourselves in these transitions and we trust God like Joseph did, he can work complete miracles. But what if Joseph would have looked at that situation and been like, yeah, there's just too much going on. I can't handle this right now. 
Barry, I'm done with you, and he just went the other way. I honestly, I have no idea what would have happened. But God obviously picked the right people. Don't let the circumstances change what you know is true. Don't reinvent the wheel. Trust God, even in the most hard, even in the hardest circumstances. And I doubt any of you guys have, I mean, you guys have probably been in some difficult circumstances, but that's a pretty hard one. Trust God through those circumstances. And that's why even in 1 Corinthians 7, even Paul says it's better to be single than to be married from a ministry perspective. We obviously know the Bible, you know, is not against marriage. But from a ministry perspective, it's so much easier because of the distractions, and because of really what's at stake. It can be very hard to stay focused on your mission with God when you have a marriage, when you have a family that you're having to deal with as well. It can amplify it. It can make it so much better when you're focused on God to get to that other position, but the stakes are so much higher because now it's not just you, it's somebody else. You see how really all these, they boil down to your heart. When you're in these situations, when you're in these transitions, who are you keeping your eyes on? Then the next one, death and loss. Flip over to Ruth chapter 1. Death and loss is one of the hardest transitions. You go from a time in your life where this person, whoever it is, close, not very close, whatever, was a part of your life, and then all of a sudden they're gone. So you guys are familiar with this story. So chapter 1, verse 3 says, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. The name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Now jump down to verse 16. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return. So the mother, Naomi was saying, look, you guys go. Let me worry about myself. You guys go and have your own lives. Don't, don't worry about me. And this is Ruth's response. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. You say Ruth has the right perspective in this transition. The girl just lost her husband. And she's like, you know what? I'm gonna stick with you. And does God honor Ruth's obedience during this transition in her life? Yeah, think about it. He brings Boaz to her. And way down the line, who comes from that line? Jesus. Jesus. I would say God blessed her tremendously. What if she was disobedient in this transition? What if she hopped off the bridge? She's like, yeah, I'm done. There's, this is too much here. And didn't do what's right. She could have had a completely different life. What, what, what bridges are you jumping off of that's going to lead you down a completely different life than what God has planned for you? And then look at verse Verse 18. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them, and, sa- and they said, Is this Naomi? 
And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Lord Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess and her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Barley harvest. So you have Ruth, the right perspective in this transition. Then you have Naomi, down, bitter, looking at her circumstances, woe is me, and not allowing God to do anything, and completely missing the beacon of light that God has placed in her life in Ruth. And God does that in our lives all the time. He puts beacons right in front of us. And we're too stinking focused on ourselves that we don't see what God's doing right in front of us. That's happened to me all the time. In our marriage sometimes I'll be bummed or ticked off about a situation and God puts this beacon of life, whether it be my wife or my kids, right in front of me. And I'm so focused on my miserable circumstance and I'm dwelling on it, dwelling on it, dwelling on it. And I'm not progressing. And God's like, just get up off your duff. You're still alive. You're still breathing. You still have purpose here. Ruth understood that. Naomi didn't. But God was still very gracious to her. And then Job 121, I love that verse where it says, Naked came I into this world, naked shall I return thither. In other words, We came into this world with nothing, but we get so attached to the things that God has blessed us with on this earth. And when they're taken from us, we act like we're owed them back. It's much better to have the perspective that Job had. Job lost everything. He had the right perspective. And then Matthew chapter 8. I think this is kind of harsh sometimes, but it's all about perspective. When a man comes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, before I follow you, I need to go back and bury my father. What does Jesus say to him? Let the dead bury the dead. And we might read that and be like, yikes, that's a little harsh. But at the end of the day, he's dead. Are you going to go back and have a conversation with him? Are you going to go back? Is there going to be something fruitful that takes place? No, be ministry-minded. What does God have next for you? I remember when uh, Brian Brown did a camp six, seven, eight years ago. What was that girl's name that her dad died? He was a pastor. Priscilla. And her dad was gunned down, I forget where in Mexico they had their church. And rather than, you know, I mean, obviously she was mourning for her dad, but he was a pastor of a church. The first thing she asked Brian Brown was, so what's going to happen to the church? Now, I don't understand how somebody can be right in that moment so sober that they're like, all right, yeah, but God's still doing work here. That was convicting me because I'm like, if I lost somebody that close to me, that would be hard for me to get my mindset into, into that mission mindset. Of, okay, but what's God still going to do here? But that's Jesus' heart. And that's how we have to train ourselves to be. This world gets us so focused on our circumstances in this world right here and now. And God has something much bigger waiting for us. God has a much bigger plan. If we would just take our eyes off the details, quit devising our own ways, and just trust God. And then moving, 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 moving sucks. Moving residences, going somewhere else is a huge transition. Flip over to Genesis 13. This is probably one of the best examples of the moving transition and how Satan can use that to give you big eyes. And moving can be anything. Moving to a college campus. Moving as a family somewhere. When you guys are older and have your own family and you're moving. 
Those are big, big transitions that can play a lot of mind games on you. Genesis 13, verse 9. says, Is not the whole land before thee? So Lot and Abram are talking, Abraham. And they're like, listen, our herdsmen, they're not getting along. It's best that we just go our separate ways. Verse 9, Is not the whole lot land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right uh, right hand, then will I go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. It looked good. It was well watered. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from another. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards where? Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So Lot looked up, and he's having to pick a new residence. He's like, yeah, that looks kind of nice over there. And he goes over, and he pitches his tent, and he faces it towards Sodom. And they know the reputation of Sodom. I mean, it tells us right there, 1313. But the men of Sodom were, were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. He's like, I can look at that from a distance. It is gorgeous. I can deal with that. You'd be surprised at the things you'll compromise in a, in a life transition in the, name of, in the name of God or think that you can control. Lot was devising his own way. He's like, this is where I want to go. I doubt this was a conversation he had with Abraham. I doubt this was a conversation he had before God. And Lot was a just man, the Bible says. He wasn't just some heathen sinner. He was still a sinner. But, God, but the Bible calls him a just man. He knew better. Satan will use great times of transition like moving to give you eyes for something that you shouldn't have. And you know what's hard is when you get in those situations is admitting you made a mistake. You know, when Lot did that, and he's sitting there, and he's looking at Sodom day in and day out. He's like, man, I made a, I made a mistake in this, this transition. I made a mistake with this choice. Does he end up moving and going somewhere else and righting his wrong? No, by the end of it, he's sitting in the gates of Sodom. By the end of it, he is living in there. He's one of the people in there. That's where these transitions, Satan will use it. If God wants you going down this path of your transition, he's got your path set. He'll get you one degree off here. He'll have you just pitch your tent here. But by the time you get to the end of that transition, you're going to be amongst the sin in a place you never thought you'd be. And that's Lot. You think of the decisions that it led him to make. The entire city was destroyed. They ripped his family out. His wife didn't obey, turned around, turned to a pillar of salt. And then he ends up fornicating with his daughters and creating the Ammonites and the Moabites. Not really a story of success. And that entire mess, that debauchery of life that Lot is now remembered for, really traces back to this transition right here. He found a new place of residence, and it looked good to him. And he's like, yep, this is where I want to be. I got this. Not even realizing where that bridge was taking him. What decisions are you making because they look good? Because they feel good. And then the key is, if you do make those decisions, don't be afraid to write them. To pick up your tent and go somewhere else. And then lastly, school and work. Go over to Colossians 3. You'll see one of your references is scribbled. 
If you look up Matthew 15:22, which was the original reference on there, it makes absolutely no sense with what we're looking at. But Colossians 3 is where we're going. And this passage really helps me when I started a new job or when I have when I'm going to a new school or when I'm starting a new training. This actually this passage really got me through college. I I don't know if you guys in here can relate. I struggle with doing things that I don't want to do, especially when they're not connected with the Bible. Can you guys relate to that? College was one of them. I'm like, this is stupid. How is this? How is college going to benefit me in eternity? It took up so much time. It took up money, took up all this energy, and I hated being there. But God had me in that moment for a reason. And I spent the first, I don't know, six months to a year playing a pity party on myself, missing what God had for me, wanting to just be at the end ignoring what God wanted to do with me in those five years. Unfortunately, I had some people in church that knocked me upside the head and said, look, you need to quit being so stinking selfish and thinking about yourself. See what God has you here for. And this is one of the passages that was referenced. Colossians 3, 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Boy, to that pierce me right in the heart knowing that of the lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the lord christ but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done and there is no respect of persons see this passage really helped me when i go into something that i really don't see god how are you even in this god's like even when you don't see me even when i'm not directly related to it even if your boss is lost which i just got a new boss i had a saved boss and i have a lost boss i'm like ooh. But the Bible says you serve him heartily. You you work for him just like you'd work for Jesus Christ if he was your boss. And it's the same thing with you guys. When you get out of your comfort zone and you go to a new new school location, this whole school year is going to be out of your comfort zone. Don't go into this school year, this weird school year, just looking for how it affects you. But go into this school year like every teacher that you have is Jesus Christ. And don't do it to try and impress the teachers, because I can do that for pride's sake. Go into this transition with a heart of, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this right because I want to obey God. I'm going to do this like my boss is God. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the stinking regulations that they throw at me, I'm going to go into this unique school year as if God was there on the other side waiting for me. Ignore the circumstances. Ignore what how it makes you feel personally, and look at it from God's lens. You know, I think we're not going to turn there, but Matthew 22, where Jesus says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, God put authorities in our lives here to be obeyed. God put these worldly situations in our lives, and he hath ordained them, and we should obey them, even in these transitions when you go into a unique school year, even when you go into a new job that doesn't seem like God is there, you still serve that person like they're God. You still be a light. I think of Daniel, when he was under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and Cyrus, he was under all these wicked kings. And think about Nebuchadnezzar. What ended up happening with Nebuchadnezzar because of Daniel's obedience? 
in a horrific transition. Dude's plucked from his homeland, gets pulled into Babylon, and is under Nebuchadnezzar. It'd be real easy to look at yourself and say, well, this sucks. There's nothing I can do here. This dude's horrible. He built a statue of himself. What ended up happening, happening with, to Nebuchadnezzar because of Daniel's obedience? Dude got saved. You don't believe it? Read Daniel 4, I think it is, 3 or 4. He gets saved. One of the most wicked men you'd read about in the Bible gets saved because of Daniel's testimony. You have no idea what God is waiting for to do with you on the other side of this transition, to do with you in position 2, or do with you through that transition. But the second you take your eyes off of what God has for you and you start looking at your circumstances, that transition is going to take you somewhere that you never planned on, just like Lot. Be a Daniel, not Lot. So in closing, your mission does not change in a life transition. Take your eyes off the storm and fix them on Jesus. Take your eyes off of the circumstance. Take your eyes off of all the physical things that you see and fix your eyes on Jesus. You'll be far more successful. You'll end up where God wants you to go. It might seem like a small little tilt here. It might just seem like you're just pitching your tent towards an evil decision here during this transition, just trying to devise your own way and control your steps. But God, you know, God doesn't force the decisions that we make. He allows, we have a free will. And if you start making stupid choices, you're going to win stupid prizes. You're going to wind up somewhere that you don't want to be. So what transitions are you in right now? And how are you trying to control those transitions rather than just letting God be God? And faith is not the absence of common sense. We still have a brain, and God has blessed us with certain abilities to be able to make rational decisions. But what do you need counsel on? What do you need accountability with? What are you afraid of that's waiting for you on position two that you don't know that's over there that you need to talk to somebody about? Life transitions are huge, and a lot of Christians get derailed on them. I know far too many Christians that I was in senior high with that they went off to college and I've never seen them again. The kids I graduated senior high with, and it was in a class probably a little little smaller than this, there is one of them that still goes to this church, Scott Sanders. And that's it. Not saying everybody else that went away, I know... David Peters, he's a close friend of mine. He's still walking with the Lord, serves the Lord. But it's very sad when you look at old camp photos and you see the transition going from high school to college, even going from grades to grades, but high school to college, man, Satan pounces in and he'll, he'll freaking he'll run with you. Don't think you're bigger than these transitions. Be prepared for them. Be ready for the journey. And keep your eyes on Jesus. Even when the waves and the tempests and they start coming up all up around you, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't think any transition is too little. Satan, Satan will use your complacency to bury you in any life transition. All right, let's pray.